we were good back then. We were good in the 80s. Shout out to Lethal Weapon 3. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world beat the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is June 30th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. Got my Georgia Tech hat on. Shout out to the Yellow Jackets uh, because I was watching an old clip from uh, a football game from 1989 yesterday, and they had a promo for a college basketball game uh, between, uh, I believe it was Duke and and Georgia Tech. Uh, (laughs) And I was just like, yeah. Nice. Yeah, we were good back then. We were good in the 80s. Shout out to Lethal Weapon 3. <laughs> I like this. I think you should explain your hat and Jeff should explain your hat too. Oh, oh is it my turn harder. to talk now? <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if you guys were just going to keep talking about 1980s uh, rambling wreck football you know, for a few more I, minutes. The, it was basketball. The like sulking you do when they're when you're not immediately introduced is maybe my favorite recurring theme <laughs> on hot <Top> down. <laughs> Jeff, uh explain your hat. Well my hat's just uh you know it's just a, a, a it's a map of the Hawaiian Islands and there you go. It's educational. If you ever it's uh, got a compass know, on it up. and everything. Uh quick soccer update we should mention that Liverpool won the English Premier League. They didn't even have to play to do it. So that was it was a foregone conclusion, but that was fun. Also, in the interest of full transparency, Arsenal has won uh, a couple of matches since uh, our last show. I need to need to just, you know, make that clear and, and show that I'm not just uh, biased against Arsenal. I mean, I am completely but what in a moment what a just not to get too jingoistic here but you know american soccer just you know coming alive a ownership american ownership winning and (laughs) the american uh prodigy the star Kristen pulisic scoring for chelsea in that game i mean USA, we won. We won yeah, the EPA. We did. Essentially. We did win. And also American women's soccer leading the way back for team sports over the weekend. I don't know if you guys caught any of those matches, but they, it was it was just it was fun and joyful and they the anthem protests were interesting and, and um unifying and I was really excited about the NWSL. On today's show, we'll look at the New England Patriots' most recent acquisition, quarterback Cam Newton, who they apparently signed for the league minimum, perhaps because they needed to set aside extra money for their league fines. We'll discuss how Newton might fit in with the Pats and what the move means for the rest of the AFC. We'll also talk about the latest instances of sports intersecting with activism and how much power athletes have right now to drive political change across the U.S. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Here's a fun stat courtesy of Trey Wingo and Elias Sports. The New England Patriots are the first team in NFL history to both lose and add a former MVP in a single offseason. The MVP they lost is, of course, Tom Brady. The MVP they gained is former Carolina Panthers quarterback Cam Newton, whose signing was announced late Sunday. With incentives, Newton's one-year contract is thought to be worth up to $7.5 million, but his base pay will reportedly be the league minimum of just over $1 million. Why would Newton take a deal worth so little? 
Adam Schefter had this to say about it on ESPN's Get Up. Cam Newton comes to the realization that he's not going to be a $30 million a year quarterback the way that many people view him to be. Carolina released him a couple of weeks into free agency. Teams had filled up their starting jobs at that point in time. So he's not going to get the opportunity that he wants at that time. So it takes a little while to settle in. Okay, what is the best situation being that I'm not going to get the type of contract that I want? And inevitably, I think him and the Patriots started talking a few weeks back. And there had been some steady contact throughout. And the fact of the matter is there was not a lot of contact from other teams in the league. The one team that stayed in touch with him in recent weeks that kept conversations going was the New England Patriots. So this seems to be an opportunity that both Newton and the Pats are excited about. What do you guys think of the deal? I think it's a great deal for New England. I mean, look what they're paying. They're paying them nothing. You know, they're they're not risking anything. Um, it's just like a tiny fraction of the cap. And, you know, uh, there was a lot of talk, especially around the draft, um, that they were really high on Jared Stidham who's, I think, what, thrown four passes in the NFL. But, you know, when the Pats say they're really high on someone, people tend to think uh, they probably know better than we do because that seems to be the way football works. Um, So there was some surprise there. But then again, I think it also makes the most sense. I think Newton, um, you know, he clearly wanted to be a starter. He didn't want to go be a backup somewhere. And, you know, he, he could still end up being a backup in New England. But I think at this point, it's a one-year deal. Um, he's got a great opportunity. He's got probably the best supporting cast he's ever had, um, possibly the best offensive line he's ever had. He could end up going to the AFC Championship. He could go to a Super Bowl, and then he could be a free agent. Um, and if it doesn't work, he can just be a free agent again. And, you know, the for the Patriots perspective, what what are they losing here? They're losing nothing. Yeah. And uh, if we kind of assume that Cam Newton can come back healthy, which by the way, is not, you know, uh, a total lock to happen, but it's sort of given the price they paid, it was worth a shot to, to take a chance. The last time Newton played a full season in 2018, he had a 53.2 QBR, which is, you know, little better than average. It's not amazing by any stretch of the imagination, but Tom Brady last year had a 53.7 QBR. So essentially <laughs> they replaced Tom Brady with someone who, if healthy, the last time that he played was functionally equivalent to Tom Brady. And, you know, that 53 QBR level is a lot lower than Newton had in 2015, you know, in that MVP season, uh, he had a 67 QBR. So I think the idea is that the upside is there if he could potentially kind of go back to playing at that level. You have one of the better quarterbacks in the league, uh, and you got him for way cheaper than either Brady would have cost to bring back or a lot of other uh, starters cost. So, you know, the Patriots are going to pay Cam Newton less then the Dolphins are paying Ryan Fitzpatrick, the same amount the Chargers are paying Tyrod Taylor, and $14 million less than Derek Carr or Jacoby Brissett will make in 2020. Uh, and the Patriots' total outlay for quarterbacks this year between Newton and uh, Stidham and Hoyer is less than 19 individual quarterbacks will make on their own this year. So it's another case of like the Patriots, you know, it's just sort of getting away with 
playing a different game than it seems like every other team is is playing in terms of how much they're paying the most important position on the field. And this is what they do. They do this better than any other team. They find underappreciated assets and they take advantage of the, you know, inefficiency in the market. And they do this over and over. Sometimes it doesn't work. Lately, it's not been working. Antonio Brown is probably the best example of that. But it has worked in the past. You know, obviously, you know, Corey Dillon, Randy Moss, guys who, you know, uh, were not wanted for whatever reason across the league at that point in their career. And they take advantage. They even did that with Tom Brady, a, a guy, as I know, is a Michigan fan who was there at, at the same time as he was. Um, he was underappreciated. He lost his job. And that was a big part of the reason he slid so late in the draft. I, I, I yeah, I think all of that is right. I do wonder why this seems like something that Cam Newton being out there and available for a while now. I, I assumed he was going to end up with the Patriots. I just sort of thought that that was. I think a lot of people thought that, right? Like <laughs> that. This seemed right. But why didn't? There's been reports that team other teams weren't calling. It doesn't Cam make Newton. any sense. What? That doesn't make any sense for that price. I mean, first of all, what is the harm of calling? I mean, right. Like, yeah. Just do your due diligence. I mean, the guys are you know MVP caliber player. Like, why not? Yeah. Um, if you have a forty million dollar quarterback, like a certain team I know, um, then sure, then you're not going to go looking for Cam Newton. You don't. You don't, you're not interested in what you think might be an expensive backup, even though obviously he wasn't. But if there are a lot of teams in the NFL with very sketchy quarterback situations, why, why weren't they talking to him? I just, I can't figure that out. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. <laughs> teams seem really afraid to bring in someone that, they, that, that might, you know, upset the apple cart of their pre existing quarterback plans. Uh, it seems like, I mean, we saw this, obviously this was not the only reason teams didn't bring in Colin Kaepernick, but that was one of the things that was floated as like a potential, you know, uh, additional reason why teams didn't bring him in was like, oh, well, he'll want to be the starter and we don't want to have someone, you know, on the bench who uh, create a quarterback controversy. You know, coaches right. seem to fear quarterback controversies more than just they fear having bad quarterback right, yeah. very strange they <laughs> would rather have a losing. bad but yeah <laughs> yeah they would rather have a losing but but at least like solidly established as starter quarterback than have you know the potential for like shouldn't you want a quarterback controversy most of the time because it means that someone is pushing your existing starter to either be better or they themselves are potentially better and you can find that out and then start them instead like we should want that yeah it shows a real inflexibility of thought from NFL GMs and and coaches. I mean, you're right, Neil, that obviously there are lots of other reasons why Colin Kaepernick wasn't um, wasn't invited to a team or signed in or, you know, even really had any conversations with um, with teams. But but I think there's also a lot to the fact that a lot of teams just won't think outside their predetermined plan. And the fact that the Patriots are willing to do that often means that they keep winning. Often, <laughs> I mean, the, I, there seems to be a correlation there between um, between their willingness to approach NFL problems in different ways um, and the fact that they go to the Super Bowl more often than not. Um, this just seems like 
I, I don't know if teams were like, yeah, yeah, Cam Newton's going to sign with the Patriots. They thought it was already over and just forgot that they had. Guys, the Patriots have dibs. We can't yeah, do anything. Like, Our hands yeah, are tied. You know? Yeah. Um, it's super weird. I don't, I don't understand that at all. So yeah, obviously Newton's health has been an issue was an issue last season. He's had some shoulder surgeries. So assuming he's healthy, which is of course a big assumption, how Neil could a healthy cam change the Patriots? Well, I think he represents a kind of a big change from Tom Brady, at least in terms of the things that he's able to do, you know, obviously much more mobile, uh, much uh, a powerful runner also at quarterback compared with just getting basically no rushing production from your quarterback. And the Patriots have, you know, as Brady got older uh, and, and they wanted to rely on him to carry things less, they built more of a run heavy team anyway. So I think in some ways uh, th- they, this might be a welcome change to be able to sort of say, let's just commit to this. We know t- um, Bill Belichick, He's actually a big fan of, you know, Gus Malzahn and like a lot of the the uh, read option type or power running concepts that Auburn ran when uh, Cam Newton was in college. Uh, and so, you know, I think Bill Belichick being such a student of the game, he he likes to run the football and having a quarterback that can do that, I think almost will give him, you know, assuming that cam is healthy, uh, something to be excited about, you know, uh, Bill Belichick for all of his famous, like reticence to talk to the press. If you ask him a question about like football history or football X's and O's and, you know, the, the, the option runs that were run by uh, the Naval Academy in the 1950s, <laughs> you know, with his dad being the scout there and everything. He would talk for like hours about that stuff. So I think the opportunity to do something different and novel from like an X's and O's standpoint is like kind of what Bill Belichick lives for as a coach. Yeah, it's actually kind of scary if you think about it, because being a Jet fan and having to play these guys twice a year for all these years, they're impossible to scheme against, or they they have been. You know, just they do so many things well. They're very creative the way they, you know, led the charge when it was the the tight end movement, when it was throwing to running backs, when it was, you know, some of the the route schemes with the way they use Edelman and, and stuff like that. But the one thing you never had to worry about was Brady running. He was like, <laughs> that, that was, you got a free pass on that. So now you have to throw that in the back of your head and, you know, maybe devote a whole defender just to, you know, keep an eye on Cam. And McDaniels has all these other options. And, and part of me thinks like Belichick and McDaniels have always wanted a running quarterback because I think they, you know, it's the one weapon they really haven't had. Yeah, and uh, Bill Barnwell, our colleague at ESPN, made a great point that in some ways Cam Newton is sort of less of a replacement for Brady and more of a replacement for Rob Gronkowski in the sense that Gronkowski was somebody that could really make you pay for, uh, you know, having these light boxes, you know, having fewer, uh, you know, run stuffing defenders up close to the line of scrimmage. And when Gronk, Gronk was gone last year, They didn't really have anything that could sort of force defenses to respect them in the same way, in like a physical way, maybe over the middle uh, or or open things up for, you know, deeper passes. And so with the fact that you have someone like Cam Newton who can run with power uh, against 
you know, defenses that are maybe geared up to stop the pass, it forces other defenses to uh, respect that more, which then in turn can open up more opportunities downfield or, you know, at the perimeter of the field uh, in a way that they had been getting out of Gronk when he was just this like world destroying tight end going over the middle and barreling over guys. Uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I, I was hoping I was excited to see what the Patriots would do, what Belichick would do without Brady. But I have to say, I was more excited to see what Belichick could do with like a crappy quarterback like Jared Stidham and not someone who could like allow them to do all interesting kinds of things. Like I, I wanted to see. I wanted to see a struggle and I feel like I'm not going to see a struggle. Well, I mean, I don't know. What are they now? They're instead of 25 to one to win the Super Bowl, they're 20 to one or something like that. I mean, this doesn't like instantly make them favorites or anything like that. Jeff, your Jets were sneaky dark horse contenders in the AFC East. Uh, What does this mean for them and for the rest of the division? Were they though? (laughs) Were they? Um, yeah, it's bad sneaky, news. Like sneaky. <laughs> it's bad news. I mean, I was so pessimistic that I just assumed Jared Stidham would be, you know, the next Pat Mahomes and that, uh, they were grooming him. And then, I, you know, I, I basically always assume they're going to be good until I, I, cause I've, we've haven't seen them not be good. Um, so why would you think otherwise? I mean, granted the, quarterback change was significant but yeah no it 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 is scary it is it is not a strong division let's put it that way (laughs) um so it's not that it's not going to be that hard for them to to take this division again i mean obviously i'm i'm high on sam darnold um i i think he hasn't quite for from what I've seen on, on the field, I, I still think he's going to be a great quarterback. I think, sure. uh, you know, not... I feel like not, Jets fans have to believe that. Honestly. Not have <laughs> No, but honestly, he, he does. He has shown flashes of looking great. Um, but he had mono. So hopefully he doesn't have mono this year. I think it's worse news for the Bills, to be honest, so because yeah. they were the looking were, like... Yeah, yeah the Jets are, are the Jets. You know, maybe if, if Darnold has uh, his long-awaited breakout and, and doesn't uh, have have uh, mono and miss <laughs> half the season, they could have had upside. But, I mean, the Bills were a team that actually did make the playoffs last year and uh, were looking like they were kind of poised to to step forward as the favorites in that division for the first time. I mean, has any team been the favorite in that division aside from no, uh, even the year not. that – yeah, even the year that Brady was hurt, he was hurt in week one. So, you know, the preseason odds still had them favored, especially coming off that uh, perfect regular season. So, yeah, this was just about the closest any team had gotten to being favored over the Pats going into a season since maybe 2001. And uh, now, you know, maybe that's not true. Okay, so what about the rest of the AFC, not just the AFC East? Like, what what does this mean for the Chiefs? What does this mean for the Ravens, the other contenders in the AFC? I, I don't know that this like moves the needle that much for the actual front runners in the AFC, like the Chiefs and the Ravens, because the Patriots were already they're they're still in that kind of next tier of contenders um, more than anything else. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Tennessee is an interesting team because they actually have a lower 
over under win total, uh, according to Las Vegas at 8.5, then either the Bills or the Patriots have right now. So, you know, it does seem like the AFC is kind of top heavy with the Chiefs and Ravens being sort of the consensus favorites to, to make the Super Bowl out of there. And then the rest of the top rated teams are over in the NFC when we're talking about the Niners and the Saints and the Cowboys and the Bucks. I mean, the Bucks are right there. They're tied with the Patriots in terms of uh, over-under win totals right now. What what this helped move us toward is a uh, Buccaneers versus Patriots Super Bowl. <laughs> are you excited about that? Is, no. can, can that happen? <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I don't think the Bucks are going to make this roll. But hey, I could be wrong. All right, but we do have to talk about one more, one other thing. The other brilliant thing about the signing is that the announcement of it came just minutes before we found out that the Pats had been fined $1.1 million for their illegal videotaping scheme last season. I assume it was happening in other seasons too, but it was caught last season. Uh, They'll also lose a third round draft pick in 2021, and they are not allowed to film any games this season. Jeff. How will the Pats recover from not recording other teams' games? Uh, that That's actually the most interesting component of this. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Just as I give them the benefit of the doubt that they will win, um, I will give them the benefit of the doubt that they will find a way to um, sidestep the rules in place that most other teams um follow generally except for them so uh they'll figure it out in terms of the videotape i I do think the third round pick is is pretty significant it's a pretty harsh penalty it was interesting that belichick himself didn't get a fine if we look back at the previous um the major scandals the you know the the sort of first spygate belichick also got a fine um this does feel like they are getting punished as a multiple offender um for doing this in the past, because this was, you know, relatively pretty severe for what they did. I, this is, I think, um, where I assume that the Patriots are cheating in every possible way, much like I assume that the Yankees are cheating in every possible way, and we just don't know all of it yet. And there's something, um, I'm, I guess I'm okay with that, I, you know. Yeah, you've been established as pro-cheating. So, yeah, in a shocking you know. development, I'm okay with the Patriots cheating. Who could have seen that coming? All right, I think we can end this discussion here for now. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll talk about athlete activism. As part of the ongoing response to widespread protests against police brutality and systemic racism in the U.S., the Mississippi legislature voted on Sunday to remove the Confederate battle flag from the corner of its state flag. It is the last state to have a Confederate symbol as part of its flag. There was a lot of pressure on the state to make the change, but a notable push came from college football. First, the SEC announced that it wouldn't hold championship games in Mississippi until the flag changed. Then Mississippi State running back Kylan Hill tweeted on June 22nd that if the state didn't change its flag, he would no longer play football for Mississippi State. Coaches from eight Mississippi universities lobbied for the change at the state capitol on June 25th. The vote came on June 28th. But before the push to change the flag seemed like a fait accompli, Stephen A. Smith talked on ESPN's first take about the effectiveness of athletes like Hill speaking out about racism. You got Mr. Sankey, the SEC commissioner, who took his position. You have the NCAA who backed him. And so when we see this kid Hill, uh, uh, Kylan Hill, 
uh, speak out the way that he did. Um, I applaud him. Um, I definitely think that he's right in what he is saying. Uh, but the flip side to it is that him alone ain't going to get this done. Uh, you know, he listen, I, I think I think it's safe to assume that any reasonably intelligent person, young man, knew about the history of Mississippi to some degree before he arrived there at that university. And I'm not trying to castigate or, or, or you know, just just go off about uh, Mississippi in terms of its institutions, in terms of the state or whatever. I've never lived there. I don't know those folks. I know what history tells me about some experiences that have emanated from there. I know that much. It's worth noting that Kylan Hill is a Mississippi native, so he presumably knows a lot more than any of us about what Mississippi is like. But do you guys think that Smith is right and that economic pressure is ultimately what matters when trying to effect change? Or can athletes like Hill, willing to speak out, exert enough pressure to make a change? Well, I think if the athletes band together, which we've seen a little bit of a movement toward in in a lot of these cases, that is economic pressure. You know, it's like, uh, especially in college football, where the whole premise is based on having these student athletes play a sport. Uh, and in the case of you know, in 2020, play a sport at potential risk to their personal safety without really any compensation beyond uh, getting a scholarship to go to school that, uh, you know, the threat of players in mass not playing or holding out until um, something changes uh, on campus or in this case, in the at the state level itself, in a sport that is so important to people in Mississippi, you know, Ole Miss football is one of the most you know culturally uh, binding things down there. That uh, the the possibility that the team might be diminished or potentially not even play is going to exert huge economic pressure on the the school and ultimately the state to make changes because. This is something that matters, and and uh, it's it's all about leverage, right? If you have the leverage to make people pay attention, but also potentially withhold something that's important until you're heard, then uh, it gives you a lot more of a chance to get the change enacted that you want. Obviously, the money is a huge influencing factor, but I do think what happened in Mississippi and something that a lot of people in Mississippi and elsewhere in the South have wanted for a long time is happening and I, I do think it's, if anything, it's it's reflective of just how this movement in this particular moment is different than 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 the past, and things are changing. I do think it's reflective of the of public opinion, which is changing. Um, obviously, I guarantee there are a lot of people in Mississippi and probably fans of those teams, um, whether it's Ole Miss or Mississippi State, who are quietly grumbling about this let's not be naive you know it's 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 not like racism's been you know cured it's not even <laughs> remotely the case um but we are seeing real change and it's not just in sports it's everywhere um in society in, in the last few weeks and interestingly i think student athletes in particular it's not even only about racism, because of course we have many problems to solve in the United States. Um, at Kansas State, there's been an outcry among athletes about homophobic language from a prominent student, and there are athletes there who are threatening not to play. So I find that really interesting that athletes all over are really using their voices and college athletes are finding their voices, um, because they're obviously hugely important to 
to these universities. And that does economics is a play in that. I mean, these teams are <laughs> moneymakers. Like, so I, I guess I feel like the take is missing that point. Yeah. And well, do you think also that uh, a big part of that is the fact that the players have kind of less to lose? I mean, at this point, you can kind of market yourself as an NFL prospect, uh, or especially I think in a sport like the NBA, without necessarily having to use the college system to be able to attract attention or at least get scouts to to notice you and and you know that that extra level uh, of using college as a stepping stone is maybe a little bit less necessary than in the past and so the consequence to not playing is not really that big of a monetary deal for for college players I think in some cases where it's like oh so if I don't play, you're you're not going to pay me. Oh wait, you already don't pay me. So <laughs> right. what exactly am I walking away from here? Especially if through social media I can kind of continue to maintain my status as a potential prospect that that teams might be interested in at the next level. Well, do you also think this particular moment where we are not sure if any games will be played this year? that also might have something to do with it. I mean, so it's a lot easier to walk away from a team that you're not sure. Yeah. Is even going to have a season. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I wonder how much that plays in too, with how the universities respond to, I mean, all of this is interconnected, but it does seem to be a, a backdrop for more athletes to speak up about things that they see as injustice. Yeah. I think it's a, it's an interesting point. Um, specifically with college athletes, because we haven't seen this. I, I think college athletes quickly adopted, while, while there have always been, you know, occasionally outspoken pros, you know, across the sports landscape, we haven't really seen this in college. College athletes, you know, immediately go to the, I call it the Derek Jeter school of media training, where you <laughs> never say anything controversial. You never say anything interesting. <laughs> and that's what you're trained to do. And and you, you watch these guys do these interviews, you know, whether it's on the sideline or on a podcast and they, and they're, they clearly are cognizant of not rocking the boat. And now maybe that's changing. And especially on the college level where you rarely saw players be outspoken and, and actually express some of these things. And, you know, part of it, I think is social media. Part of it, I think is clearly the movement that's happening right now. Um, but it, it's actually great to see. I, I, it's 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 great to see, especially for college football players who have long been taken advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Neil, you co-wrote a piece on our site with our colleague Chris Herring about how WNBA star Maya Moore transitioned from playing basketball to fighting for social justice. How is her story relevant to where we are right now? Well, I think it's very relevant, uh, especially when we're talking about players walking away uh, from their sport, really in their prime, Maya Moore was, you know, in the conversation, at least building a resume to be in the conversation of the best WNBA player ever. If you think about, she won six, uh, she went to six WNBA finals. She won four titles. That's on top of two titles that she won in college at UConn. She also has won two gold medals at the Olympics. She's been the MVP. Uh, statistically, she was the second best player of the decade of the 2010s, despite not playing in either of the seasons that bookended that decade. Uh, and she's generated more wins per year on a per season basis than anybody in WNBA history, except for our favorite, Cynthia Cooper, the goat of, of uh, women's basketball. 
And yet, you know, at the peak of her her powers, she stepped away to help uh, a man that she, you know, through her family, she had known for a long time who had been uh, sent to prison. And she believed wrongfully uh, of a of a violent crime, a felony. And she basically spent two years trying to get the case overturned and and getting him you know exonerated and and freed and uh very recently it actually worked she uh the the uh, verdict was overturned and uh he was free and so that's kind of a case study in someone i think when when that first happened and she announced that she was stepping away to fight for just one man's freedom really not even just the larger movement, but focusing on something that meant something deeply to her. And at least for the time being, his uh, conviction was overturned. Uh, uh, so, you know, there's still a possibility that he might uh, have charges refiled against him. But for the time being, it's it's kind of a victory. And I thought that was what was so striking was when she announced that she was walking away from the game, uh, just to fight for one man's freedom for for justice in one particular case uh that it it was something that we had never seen before uh especially not from a player of Maya Moore's stature in the game and i think that it provides almost like a template for other players to you know commit themselves to uh social justice and activism off the court uh and i think it bears mentioning that Maya Moore plays in the WNBA where famously there's a huge pay gap against, you know, men's sports, particularly the NBA. Uh, and a lot of players have to go overseas during the off season to the WNBA to play. They never have time off and that increases their risk of injury and burnout because they're constantly playing 365 days a year practically. And so, you know, Maya Moore had less of a chance to build up money and and kind of security than her male counterparts. But it does also play into what we talked about before with the college players, where it's like maybe it's a little bit easier to walk away when the alternative is making so little money comparatively uh, that that it kind of there's a reason why we're seeing sport uh, athletes in the comparatively lower paying sports or in the case of college non-paying talk about walking away. But I think it, it's an example of a player leaving their career behind, a truly great player. And, and she might come back. You know, she has not uh, ruled out a potential return to the WNBA. Um, but she's certainly lost prime seasons of her career to this cause. Uh, and so we argued that she should be up there on kind of the, you know, in the in the Hall of Fame of uh, athlete you know, socially conscious athletes that sacrifice something tangible uh, in terms of their own career to advance um, justice for someone else. Yeah, her that she walked away in the middle of her prime, um, I think really does say something. So, Jeff, is it possible that the recent embrace of athlete activism will change how leagues are approaching their own internal issues of diversity and fairness? I'm still a little skeptical. I think, um, as we've seen in the NFL, you know, particularly they seem to be going backwards in terms of their uh, hiring practices. Um, There was a study at Arizona State that actually gave them a worse grade than the previous year. ASU does uh, letter grades for all the leagues and the NFL got a B minus. The problems, you know, which we've talked about on this pod um, quite a bit are systemic and they're going to take a long time 
to change. I think it'll, it'll, the most significant change in the NFL, you know, in particular would be black ownership, um, which is, I, I really think the only way, but again, also this is systemic to all of sports. I mean, college footballs in terms of, you know, diversity hiring is, is even worse than the NFL and always has been. And um, it needs to change on every level and it won't happen overnight. I think what happened with the NFL in the wake of the George Floyd killing was a start. There's obviously a lot more it can do um, to get better on a lot of these issues. But at this point, we'll take it. I think any change is noteworthy and it, it seems to be at least heading in the right direction. Um, but in terms of, you know, representation and, and hiring practices, there's a lot to overcome there. Not just in the NFL, but in really every level of football and 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 many sports, and in you know American society in general. Yeah, and also in all of society. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm sure we'll have lots more to say about these issues in the future, but let's leave this here for now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil and Jeff. Yeah, Jeff, we we tag teamed on a, a golf story, but also we're going to uh, put it in the podcast now as a rabbit hole. And it's about... And by tag team, let's just be clear that Neil did all the work <laughs> and he did all the data and all the research and i just sort of sat here um but we tag teamed it <laughs> yeah no it's a, it's a classic uh neil and jeff uh, co-byline uh so we want we were talking about bryson dechambeau uh who on in addition to being one of the great names in sports uh he currently ranks second on the pga tour in average yards per drive with 320.1, which is uh, trailing only Cameron Champ, who has 320.8. Uh, and 321, uh, 320.1 yards per drive is a lot of distance per drive. Uh, both DeChambeau and Champ are challenging Hank Keeney's record set in 2003 with an average of 321.4 yards per drive, which is still the only full season since the tour started tracking this stat in 1980, in which a player averaged over 320 yards per drive. But DeChambeau was not a mega long hitter before this season. In fact, last year, he only, I put that in air quotes, averaged 302.5 yards per drive. I would love to average 302.5 yards per drive. But that was just 34th best on tour last year. And in his best year, he hit 305.7 yards per drive in 2018. And that still barely cracked the top 25. It was 25th best. Uh, so this season, DeChambeau has improved his average driving distance by 17.6 yards, uh, which is easily the best of any player this year, but also it's uh, on pace to be the eighth biggest improvement from one season to the next in driving distance uh, since 1980. And as you might expect, the longer drives have come at the expense of accuracy. Last season, he hit 65% of fairways, which was fine. It was 65th best. This year, he's only hitting 61%, which is outside the top 100. But what's interesting is that it hasn't affected his overall performance. 
For instance, he's hitting 72% of greens in regulation this year, up from 66% last year. And his overall ranking in strokes gained tee to green has gone from 37th to 6th, and it's making him a lot more money. He he ranked 25th on the tour in money last year, but now he ranks 6th, and his scoring average has dropped by almost two strokes per round, down under 69 strokes per round. Uh, and he's finished top 10 seven times in 10 tournaments so far. So this is like a huge, pretty unprecedented uh, driving distance breakout. And Jeff, I, I know you you have been digging into the reasons why he has been able to drive the ball a lot further this year, right? Well, um, it, it's pretty obvious uh, to tell just by looking at him. <laughs> um, he looks like he ate another golfer. <laughs> um, he's huge. He's gigantic. I mean, uh, like, basically... We're, I'm not saying he used steroids. I don't think he did because <laughs> we've seen his workout routine. Just clearing that up right now. But it's like a Barry Bonds, for lack of a better comparison, physical. Yeah, I love that. Like you're like, he didn't use steroids, but gosh, it sure is like Barry Bonds. I, can explain. I mean, the other options to compare him to, uh, you know, the Incredible Hulk. It's it's, <laughs> it's at least what some people estimate 40 pounds. He's gotten huge. and But he's an interesting golfer, I think. Because he's one who's always taken a very, you know, he's he really is the most 538 of golfers um, in that he's looking for every data advantage he can get. He's a nerd. That's the point. <laughs> um, and it's clearly working. Um, so because he wanted to get in those extra yards, he bulked up and then he used... Um, he used this little mini off season in the middle of the golf season to bulk up even more. And just looking at his results, it's clearly working. Yeah, I originally thought he had put on 40 pounds during the like break in the season. I was like, okay, that is suspicious. <laughs> but but it, it did start quite a bit. Although the that. quarantine probably helped no, in, yeah, in that regard. Sure. Yeah. And to your point, Jeff, I think that, that uh, this totally fits in with the research, you know, if he, uh, given that he is such a data nerd in terms of, you know, analyzing performance metrics, that all of the research that I've seen shows that driving distance has a lot more correlation with your strokes gained off the tee. And in other things like improving your your iron accuracy, your greens and regulation percentage, and even like your your putts per round, you know, and and things like that by having greater proximity to the hole, that uh, it's worth it to have that trade off between distance and accuracy every time. I do wonder. This is something I'm I'm not very clear on. How much does increased bulk matter in driving? I mean, like. Tiger was muscular, is muscular, and he, you know, came onto the scene as a muscular guy, but like not big. I mean, this isn't this isn't that different than the question I always had about Barry Bonds. Like baseball is you, you have to do so many things right with a baseball to hit it far that have nothing to do with how ginormous your arms are, right? I mean, like it's all about it's your hips, it's like the the angle you hit the ball at all of these things that that don't have anything to do with your size how much does size matter <laughs> in golf like does it really i guess i mean we're seeing it with bryson but it has not traditionally mattered that much has it yeah no i i was a little surprised by that too because i never i always thought it was more you know a matter of swing um 
and you know smash rate or or all the stats um but uh, he clearly sees you know whether it's the getting the club head velocity up that this this is helping but yeah it doesn't i mean i think it's just one of those things like there are so many other factors just like with bonds bonds had probably the best eye of any hitter you know in his generation and you combine that with more power then all of a sudden you're talking you can't just bulk up right and and expect to be good at golf there's so many (laughs) other things at play here um and, you know, I think it's also true with a lot of these guys that they, they're not out there. You know, everyone was, you know, gawking at Mike Trout's um, top golf shot where he just, you know, basically sent the ball into orbit. But he was clearly swinging as hard <laughs> as possible, which is not something pro golfers do. If you want those guys to get up there and swing as hard as possible and not care where the ball lands, you're going to see a lot of different drives. So it is kind of like we see this in baseball, too, with do you really need to throw um, a roll Chapman style as hard as possible every pitch? Um, you know, and what are you sacrificing by doing that? Um, and I think you do need to sort of combine your existing swing and your approach with you know your natural power generated from each swing yeah but i mean it, it, little changes in muscle and s- swing speed can have big effects in terms of distance like i go back with the barry bonds example alan nathan who's the kind of canonical baseball physicist found that each addition of one percent of fly ball distance increases your probability of hitting a home run by seven percent And so, and also a three mile per hour increase in batted ball speed leads to a 4.3% increase in batted ball distance and therefore a 30% increase in home run probability. Now for golf, you know, in, in baseball, all you have to do is clear the fence. And so it could take a bunch of sort of hard hit warning track fly balls and turn them into home runs. And suddenly you're, you're Brady Anderson hitting 50 home runs in a season, (laughs) not to besmirch the fine name of Baltimore Orioles. Great. Brady Anderson, but um, (laughs) never would I do such a thing. Whereas in golf, you know, maybe it's a little bit less of a pronounced uh, feature because it's like, does it matter that much that you're, you know, it's a question of degrees, not like binary. Is it a home run or not? It's like how much shorter, but I mean, club selection varies based on, you know, small changes in yardage, you know, from the pen on your approach shot. So it could be the difference between you hitting some kind of wedge versus hitting like a nine iron or something on your second shot, which is known to, you know, you're going to be that much more close to the hole on your putt and you kind of go from there. And Sarah, just to your point, we've seen a lot of golfers go the complete opposite direction. I mean, Phil has lost weight and, and slimmed down across various periods uh even i think it was gary woodland this year who was one of the big uh you know u.s open winner but big power hitters came out this season you know a lot i think they had lost 10 or 15 pounds so i think it's it's relative to each player's swing and um their fitness yeah i think that's right and like i mean bryson put on muscle here um and i think you know just putting on weight 
is not going to be the same thing. Taking off weight makes sense then. For Although John players. Daly was a was well, a very long hitter. <laughs> saying a, that's a good point. Um, I thought I always thought the cigarettes did it for John Daly. Oh, I thought it was the Diet Coke. <laughs> oh yeah, also good point. I just want to wrap this up by noting that both of you referred to Bryce DeChambeau as a nerd, and I feel like when five thirty eight people call other people nerds, that means you're a nerd. Like there's no getting around that. <laughs> Look, I think it's great. I think it's a triumph. It's a compliment for sure. (laughs) You know, I think he needs to still work on his his hat game. He hasn't improved in that. Um, No, it's get him a Hawaii hat. Ben Hogan hat. No, I like it. (laughs) Uh, Not a fan. Not a fan. All right, but he knew he knew his own game well enough to know that this change would help him and just by his results well he hasn't won these last few tournaments since moving back he's right there every time so it's clearly working and now it'll be interesting to see i think if we see more of a copycats if we see more guys try to do this and just spend all winter in the gym yeah what works for one person will undoubtedly be copied by many other people whether it would work for them or not All right, that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Mallon. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.